From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. James Kerrigan is a musician, designer, and a true global citizen. His career in design has carried him from Australia to London to Los Angeles, DC, and now Dallas. In addition to his masterful skill in guitars and talented eye for design, James is a deep thinker. Like many of my conversations with James, he finds a way to stretch my mind. In this chat, he explores the future around the purpose of place and really challenges us on thinking bigger about the profession of interior design. James. Hello. Hey, you're on. I'm here. <clears throat> you're here, yeah. We're in the cloud together. Exactly. Well, that just sounds nice, just that visual. I feel like we got our feet kicked up, <laughs> flip-flops on, just laying in a cloud. Yeah. There's a lot more time spent thinking about the cloud than actually enjoying the cloud, it feels, at the moment. I had this uh, thought we could, we could um, design like a file cabinet, basically, and shape it. Like, you know, like, you know, almost decorate it like a cloud. And then we could store our files in it. Uh-huh. And then everybody could say, to, you know, just store it, you know, just put it in a cloud. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, there was like the guy who had the, um, you know, the beautiful boat that um, when people rang the office and the, um, looking for him, his um, assistant could legitimately say that he was out on business because that was the name of the boat. <laughs> It was true and it was not a lie, even though it wasn't what they meant. Right, right. Yeah. Truth and deception, I guess, can sometimes be the same thing. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, thank you for joining this. Uh, I've known you five years now, and I've had the privilege of many kind of late into the evening conversations. Your, um, your expertise has been, well... You have, you're, you're an interior designer, we know this, but um, I would say the business of design is something that comes up a lot when we connect. And so I'm going to jump right in. What, what comes to your mind when you hear the business of design? Are there companies you think of, ways that you define that? Yeah, I think it's more the way that you define it, uh, particularly, because I think it means several things to me. And I, I think it's, it's speaking to this uh, notion that design has an opportunity to add value to an organization. I mean, I think that's how I think of business of design. And I think that traditionally interior design inverted commas for some people and perhaps still today, some sections of society sort of misunderstand what interior design means. You know, I think it's, it's focused on, it's a luxury item. It's this sort of optional, opinion-based, aesthetic-driven um, service where, you know, people who practice interior design make things look nice, inverted commas. And so I think, you know, those misconceptions can belie the value of design thinking and strategy that we bring to clients. And, you know, it's typically we're um, adding value to solve clients' problems in, in unexpected ways. So often you'll get a, a client that says, you know, we've got this issue, this problem, and we think we need to do X. And obviously the 
true value of uh, design is being able to illustrate ways to solve that particular problem and ideally and during that process you uncover the unforeseen or the unanticipated that adds greater values through design thinking and so for me I think that there's a lot um, that, that's involved in that and I think it's um, you know sometimes you know design thinking and the business of design involves demonstrating um, that sometimes you actually don't need more quite often a conversation with clients will start with we need additional space or we have this problem we need room for more people or, we need a new building and sometimes or quite often in fact there are other ways to approach that and we find you know demonstrating that you don't necessarily need to build that building or take that additional space because there's other ways to approach it so i think all of that's folded up in the business to business of design and where that then tends towards I think it's particularly relevant in a in a world that we're in at the moment where you know a lot of people are probably questioning the um, amount of space that they occupy and the way that they use that space and the ability to avoid you know continuing to add to space unnecessarily those are all things I think particularly relevant in this moment so of this, you know, the, the clients that we serve that pay a service for this, this design, are they valuing this correctly? I mean, is, is design undervalued today or is it more valuable today than it's been before? I, I think like many things in life, there's, unfortunately, there's no one straight answer to that. I think it's a continuum. I think many organizations that um, have a longer term relationship with uh, design firms often see the value of that design. So I think there's a spectrum. I think there's an end of the world that um, some clients tend to focus on the more transactional nature of things. We're fortunate to not find ourselves in that world uh, as often. And it tends to be a, a broader value where um, the ideas that we're bringing forth are valued because ultimately that that's often what design brings to things you know we don't make widgets we sell ideas and expertise and that's ultimately what you're bringing to bear on any particular uh, problem so being able to um, illustrate that for clients that um, often will see value because they realize that it's bringing um, value to their organization and it's delivering an outcome that they had not anticipated so yeah i think there is there is a range and typically, um, particularly in the corporate world, there are organizations that recognize that value and are willing to invest in it. I guess when we look at value, I'm, I'm going to go bigger picture now and talk more generally about design. And the question I have is, is design cheaper than it used to be, or is it just more accessible? And not just design as a practice, I mean, design as a, uh, as a result, as something you consume, um, whether in a product or in a space. And, and I guess where I'm getting at here is think about HGTV, Target, Ikea. Did brands like this heighten the awareness of design and make it more accessible or, or did it basically cheapen design? And I'm going to give an example. So we're going to look at photography. If you're a photographer, you know, 20 years ago, it was a very specialized 
thing that you did and you needed the right equipment and you needed training and you needed to understand lighting and filters. And now with today's technology and, and our phones, did photography get cheapened or did photography simply become more accessible? Right. So there's a, you know, there's quite a few things to that. And I think I would break it down by sort of addressing the idea of, you know, have the HDTVs, IKEAs, targets of this world, have they cheapened design? Sort of tackle that first and then talk about the, um, the example. So I think from my perspective, anything that raises the consciousness of design in a broader public consciousness, I think that's a really positive thing for the um, industry and all of us, as far as I'm concerned. I think that democratization of design was one of the goals of the modern movement 100 years ago. And if anything, the reason why that didn't happen at the time was they didn't have perhaps the manufacturing techniques to be able to scale and deliver those products uh, at a scale that was affordable. And so, you know, the accessibility or value of, um, you know, the prefab versus the ideas and solutions, I think are sort of two different things, right? You've got an example would be, you know, Ikea um, has made quality kitchens affordable and I think that's a different proposition to, you know, what the um, experience and results of a uh, higher end kitchen may result in. I think there's analogies to the, you know, manufacturing car world as well, where you've got um, manufacturers who deliver value driven um, cars that get you from A to B, but clearly there's an equal market, if not larger for um, vehicles that deliver uh, a get you from A to B, but it delivers an entirely different experience. And so I think it's really important to distinguish between physical products and ideas because sort of that democratization of, of design, what can be great about that is that there is that accessibility and the design thinking that's involved and the effort that it takes to deliver on that can be dispersed and distributed over you know, a greater range of products. The challenge often is a proposition when it's a one-off design solution is quite often there's an element, there's an effort and lift in time that's required to deliver on something that is not necessarily as easy to value for depending on the audience and who's consuming it. So I think that that becomes a challenge. I think if you start to talk about the notion of photography and the, the shift that you referenced, I think many of the examples that have um that you would reference whether it's like you know kodak to, to name a company that often gets brought up in this or you mentioned the reference of copywriting the i think the common theme there is that technology um transformed those press professions but they didn't necessarily um cheapen them i think those industries that were referenced failed to or missed the opportunity uh to pivot change and adapt. And I think that's the, the broader challenge. You know, things are constantly evolving and changing in um, industries and professions. And it's having the skills and expertise to evolve in that as we need to do in our own careers is sort of um, really key. Of course, the taxi industry is a great example of one of those where a technology profoundly affected um, an industry. And I do think that 
um, the design industry is at a particularly interesting uh, inflection point where there is potentially a profound change on the way that we are going to um, do our own work and in how we deliver that work for our clients because their relationship and how they um, use value and decide what their purpose of place is is going to provide you know it's going to change markedly in the future yeah i i mean i I would love to know is there something you've seen something you're predicting that threatens today's you know designer and 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 the way they work to where hey you know we need to adapt to this whatever that is to not become the photographer that doesn't get hired anymore yeah, I think there's a, a couple of things that I think the, the thing that I see coming is that there's much, there's likely to be a, a, a profoundly different way that um, many organizations are going to think about place. The value of place in the, in the future um, is going to be key to many organizations. We all recognize what that is. Organizations do, designers, there's much to support that. The issue in the future is likely to become in a post uh, pandemic world is that there are many organizations have also learned in this period that the need for the um, extent and quantity of uh, physical space will not be as great as they had once upon a time. So that doesn't devalue the purpose of place. If anything, it's going to um, amplify and illustrate the, the importance of a space is there to connect people to bring them together, allow people to learn, mentor, to connect with clients. But equally, there's been a lot learned around the fact that many uh, organizations have people within them that that can be effective and perhaps prefer the flexibility of working elsewhere that allows them to do that deep work in an environment that is outside of a conventional office space. So as a consequence of all of that, I think that there's going to be a major impact on the types of spaces and places that we create for clients in the future and how those are valued in the future are going to be um, how we value for that as we move forward is going to be interesting because in effect, we'll be delivering less physical space, but probably space that is of far greater value to an organization. One, because it's, a space that's optimized and specific to a particular use and need. And clearly there's a significant saving opportunity for an organization to be able to reinvest those resources in learning, in their people, and in the experiences they provide for them. And so there are going to be some, I think, significant changes in how we um, need to react to the market as we move forward, for sure. Is, you know, you you talked about the, the reduction in space um, mainly driven from the idea that you know you can you could be productive in other places in the office, and that's now more than proven, right? And there's going to be increased trust in our workplace culture, um, an understanding that people have a life outside work; they're not just robots. We're getting to this place, and as you're describing, you know, this area to connect with people, um, to mentor to do things other than just uh, put in a solid day's focus, you know? Right. There's gotta be pressure to bring those people that are not in the office into conversations, 
in certain ways, whether it's uh, via scheduled time or, or impromptu, is there going to be pressure on designers and design firms to kind of up their audiovisual game? I mean, is that is that going to be a, a, a different set of, of people that are engaged in the process or will they be, you know, will they be consulted for that as well? I mean, I think that any project today has, you know, a significant component that's made up, you know, there's a significant input from audiovisual on many projects as they are today. But to your point, as we move forward in the way we've been thinking about this um, particular issue, there are sort of three pillars that we often think about or elements as we refer to as sort of culture, place and tools. And they're interconnected. And much of these ideas around, you know, spaces that are focused on, you know, effective in-person um, connectivity and as a play, as a hub, if you will, the, the success and efficacy of those spaces in the future will be absolutely down to how well tools are integrated into them so that um, we can also continue to leverage and benefit from the um, virtual work that we've all been undertaking. I think one of the upsides and the downsides of all of this is that if anything, I'm better connected to many colleagues across the organization that aren't connected to one physical location. As much as I traveled prior to all of this, there is only so many places and so many planes you can get on to be somewhere, whether it was to um, interact with a client or with a, a team. And as a consequence of all of this, we've been able to um, work much more across locations, which benefits um, the, the work and the solutions that we're bringing to bear on a particular situation. And I think that's where it ties back to tools is that, yes, I think tools are absolutely, or the audiovisual component, as an example, it needs to be absolutely integrated into. And usually that's, you know, there are um, integrators or um, other expertise in the specifics of that. But I think as we move forward, this is where increasingly perhaps, you know, I don't know if this is particularly controversial, but the notion of the word interior design or that descriptor perhaps is increasingly becoming outdated because really the way that particularly from a uh, response to a corporate world of solving for spaces we move forward in the future is going to be across a platform more than likely where you yes you are addressing physical place and what that purpose is but you're also addressing um, what does that remote and virtual world look like whether it's a work from home model um, there's obviously other places that people can work from. So what does that experience look like so that you address the physical and the virtual experience so there's a cohesion and that ideally it's, it's frictionless and that people enjoy that experience and don't feel that they're somehow, you know, not participating or missing out when they're not in a physical location. For this to be successful, all of those pieces need to be in place. I, I had this image, as you were saying, um, you were talking about uh, feeling left out. And I thought even the, the people in the meeting, um, let's say in a space that supports a Zoom call, so you have four people in a room and you have uh, four people that are remote. Many of the setups I've seen, probably with today's spacing, only two of those people would actually make it on the camera. And the other two are probably sitting too close or off to the side. And so it makes you even wonder, do you need to, do we need to go as far as even understanding camera angles and, and really start to plan at that level of detail with kind of 
technology and AV thinking into the way we address space. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, what, what's pretty remarkable is that so many organizations, perhaps in the last 12 months, and some were much further ahead of that curve that had already adopted many of these tools that allow people to better connect virtually. But it is interesting that so many companies in the last perhaps 12 months have adopted. And so, so much has been ubiquitous that the adoption of working virtually for many organizations where culture was strong has been really quite seamless and, and, and positive and has clearly accelerated, um, you know, the kind of sense of where we could have perhaps gone for, if you think of workplace evolution on a continuum, we've clearly jumped several years of um, what people might have been comfortable with or what they could have ever expected to be achieved. So when you get into then the specifics around technology, for sure, there's much that we're all learning about what works okay and what could be refined and, and improved upon because um, a, a lot of these tools were perhaps sort of developed um, with particular function in, in mind and now we're, we're starting to see situations unanticipated that could never have been anticipated that we're now going to need to solve for and that idea about you know how you um, get a meaningful conversation between four or five people in a room and then the um, you know the virtual component to that what whether it be camera angles I think the other part to it is, is the cultural component how do you participate in a meeting there's obviously an immediacy that we all have when we're in person working with each other and some of that clearly can be uh, challenging when many of you are on uh, a camera so it's the protocols and the ability to make sure that people's voices are being heard and that it's um, that you don't just transfer the behavior of an in-person meeting necessarily to a remote uh, meeting but there's obviously other opportunities that come out of it as well which is the idea of because of the technology that maybe you can work more um, asynchronous asynchronistically um, or asynchronously um, where you you know, are able to have uh, a wider global um, input from colleagues without necessarily having to all meet and have some people meeting at, um, you know, at, at, in a time zone that's really inconvenient for them. So that is the technology um, that already exists to be able to transcribe meetings so that people can um, be connected and participate in something without having to necessarily all be, whether it's physically or virtually, on a particular meeting in a given time. So there's going to be um, increasing emphasis on tools that add value that allow us to collaborate and you know, virtually co-create. Um, there's many already out there, but there's going to be an abundance in response to um, this experience that we're all going through right now. So if you were creating this profession today, didn't have a name, let's say, and you were the first one practicing this, everything you're talking about here. What what would you call this? Because you said you even said you know, do we do we rename it? It's maybe not just interior design. It's bigger, and uh, I think there's also a public perception. Let's face it, people hear interior design and they think something totally different than what you're doing every day. What would you know? Where what what do you think? Yeah, to name it, that, that's that's a million dollar question right there. 
Um, I, I do think that there is, and you know, before coming up, throwing out a name to it, I think acknowledging that it, it's obviously from a profession perspective, one of the, the challenges with it, and maybe it explains some of the um, challenges with uh, inclusion around diversity of um, as a career, if it's seen as something that's either uh, luxury, optional, um, qualitative, or not necessarily something that is, um, you know, of any if it's a perception about substance. And we know that those things are all purely opinion um, and subjective and incorrect. But if that's the perception of people that that's preventing people from engaging with or seeing the value of being part of this profession, then maybe that gives rise to, to why you would think about um, renaming it partly. But equally, I think just the fact that there are many facets now and they are increasing. And this was already in play prior to all of this unfolding. You know, this, this is not new information that the role of design, interior designers has been in flux and evolving for um, many years. And so, you know, ultimately, most of this all comes back to problem solving of, of some kind. So I guess, you know, something around the idea of uh, design thinking is to me what um, all of this is uh, wrapped up into with it coming to some profound new name for it that I think I will leave to uh, other experts. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, it, it, it design thinking at the core and yeah, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting. You hear experienced designer or something and you think uh, web, you know, well, I, I think it really what it comes around to though is if I, if I was really looking to, to to name it, it's really an emphasis and focus on place and place making, because that's what ultimately all of these things, whether it's um, design thinking, the integration of um, tools around audio visual, problem solving, it's all ultimately in the service of place making for people to use, and that's at its core what all of this is about. And so as a label, that, that's um, increasingly how I prefer to think about it because so much um, more is uh, evocative from that than, you know, what unfortunately, as much as I'm proud to um, be associated and, and as a profession be part of the interior design profession, um, it's like everything, things change and things evolve and perhaps that's a, a reason to consider thinking differently about how it's communicated to people. James identified culture, place, and tools in this conversation with me. You know, in our world of design, I always thought of culture and tools as things that sat inside of place. I guess I thought everything sat inside of place. It seemed like that was the boundary that interior design was about, right? We've been conditioned to think of interior design as having these very specific physical limits that we work inside of. Well, that sort of thinking's out the door for our clients. It no longer works for them. James is asking us to think outside the building and how the role of place and placemaking can go beyond the typical four walls around us.
If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com backslash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.